Well, the event that we will be discussing in this lesson from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 15, which I have entitled, The Ladder Lord, not L-A-T-T-E-R, but L-A-D-D-E-R, The Ladder Lord. This event was one of the major turning points in Jacob's life. At a place that he himself named Bethel, Jacob had his very first personal encounter with the Lord God of heaven. Although Jacob had believed in God and in God's promises practically all of his life, yet he had not had, at this point, remember how old is he? 77 years old. He had not yet had a one-on-one encounter with the Lord as his grandfather Abraham had had on more than one occasion and as his father Isaac had also experienced. At this point, Jacob has never one-on-one had an encounter with the Lord. It has been said that Bethel was to Jacob what the burning bush was to Moses and what the vision of God's holiness was to Isaiah. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon his throne and the angels were saying, holy, holy, holy. Prior to these experiences with God, all these men, you know, Moses, Isaiah, and Jacob, they had... They had believed in God, and they had believed in his promise concerning the coming deliverer, and they had no doubt, you know, worshipped God in the, the right way, the required way, which was through the shedding of the blood of an innocent animal substitute, which was sacrificed on the behalf of their sins. And they, we know, had all prayed frequently to God. However, they each had a special and a new awakening about the Lord when he first revealed himself to them in their individual encounters. Whether it was, as we look today, at Bethel in a dream, that's how the Lord revealed himself to Jacob, or if it was on Mount Sinai, you know, in a voice coming through a burning bush to Moses, or if it was in a vision of God's holiness upon his heavenly throne. Jacob's faith was expanded by his encounter with the Lord at Bethel, which, of course, you can imagine it would be, you know, seeing the Lord of heaven. He, he left Bethel with a broader understanding of God's, for one thing, omnipresence, that God is all places at once. He left Bethel, Jacob did, with a lighter step to his walk, and we'll see that when we look at chapter 29. And he also, of course, left there with uh, great encouragement because the Lord greatly encouraged him at Bethel, which is what we will look at this morning. Jacob would not always talk and walk as he should have after this first direct encounter with the Lord, but it was nonetheless, this encounter was an experience that he would never, ever forget, as you can well imagine, and he would more fully appreciate with his growing spiritual maturity. Now, after saying all that, it's only fair to tell you that some Bible scholars, and if you've done any reading on the book of Genesis, you'll know this, that some Bible scholars do believe that Jacob's encounter with the latter Lord, or the Lord of the latter, here in Genesis 28, at Bethel, was the time of his salvation experience. You know, that this was the time Jacob got saved. And that may be. But there are valid reasons for also thinking that Jacob was already saved prior to his encounter with the Lord at Bethel. And other Bible scholars do indeed hold to that position. You know, that he was already saved before he had the dream that you all know of as Jacob's dream of the ladder. Salvation, now this was one of your questions the very first week, remember? Salvation has always been by way of God's grace through man's faith in whom? The promised Savior, you know, the promised seed of the woman, the one predicted to come all the way from the beginning in Genesis 3.15. Jacob's, when we look back on Jacob's life, we see his obsessive desire for the birthright privileges 
and the responsibilities that went with that, as well as his obsessive desire for the patriarchal blessing, the blessing of his father. That, those things give us evidence that he did believe in the God of his father, the true God, his father and his grandfather's God, and he believed also in the special covenant given to each of them by God, a covenant which included the promise of the Savior coming through their lineage, the Messianic line. And he, he definitely wanted to be in that line. Jacob's faith in God and his faith in that particular promise of the coming seed of the woman who would crush the evil serpent Satan, that was sufficient to save him. But I have to tell you that other Bible scholars do not think this. Obviously, I've already said that. Some of them think that he was saved at Bethel. And yet other Bible scholars say that Jacob was not saved until the night he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. So, I, what I urge you each to do is as we go through Jacob's life, think about this and see if you can determine yourself when you think he might have been saved. Um, and maybe what you think this morning will change. Maybe you'll change your mind along the way. All right? And we'll talk. I'll, I'll even mention some things in this morning's study. Okay? But just remember that. When was Jacob saved? Can we even know? We may not be able to know. I mean, Bible scholars obviously have been debating this issue for many years. And they still do not agree. Well, in our look at Genesis 28, verses 10 to 15, here's our outline. And if you want to, you can flip over your question sheet and maybe write notes on the back of that. We are going to look at three main topics. In verse 10, we're going to look very briefly at Jacob's departure to Padan Aram. Then in verse 11, we're going to consider the darkness and the pillow. And in verses 12 to 15, we'll talk at length. That'll be the most part of our lesson. We'll look at the dream itself and the pronouncement made by the, the Lord. Of the latter. So let's first of all look at the departure, Jacob's departure to Padan Aram in verse 10. Okay, Genesis 28, verse 10. It says, And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. After receiving his marital instructions and his father's words of blessing, that was in back, back in verses 1 to 4, Jacob was hurriedly sent out from his home there in Beersheba to begin a long, it's about 500 miles from where he was in Beersheba up to his final destination in Haran. So he's beginning his long 500-mile trip to Haran, which was located in the northern part of Mesopotamia. He was going to go to a region which is known, or was known as Padan Aram, which refers to, if you translate Padan Aram, it means the field of Aram, and Aram was the ancient name for the country of Syria. Although he may have traveled on foot, it's more likely that he, that he probably rode either a camel or an ass. You know, we think about as much as his parents would have loved him, it's very doubtful that he would have, they would have sent him out on foot. I'm sure he had maybe one ass, maybe one to ride himself and another one to carry some supplies. Basic, very basic supplies. We know that uh, it was going to be a long and very difficult and dangerous journey for him, so I, I hardly think his parents would send him out with nothing at all, some food supplies and that sort of thing. But we do know he hardly had much. I mean, he, he, that's not very good English. He didn't have much. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. So I'll tell you what we do know he had, and it wasn't much. Well, when Jacob arrived at a place which he himself would name Bethel, meaning the house of God, that's what Bethel means, house of God. If you've done your observation questions, you know that. He, when he arrived there to spend the night, it was probably about his third night away from home. It had taken Abraham and Isaac. Remember when Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah to uh, offer him there as a sacrifice in obedience to God's command? It had taken them three days to go from Beersheba up to Mount Moriah. And we know that Bethel was 12 miles further north than um, Mount Moriah. 
So it was probably either their third or their fourth, I mean, Jacob's third or fourth night on the road. Now, Bethel was located 3,000 feet above sea level on top of a mountain ridge west, just west of the Jordan River. That area of Canaan, or Israel, is, is desolate. It's very desolate, and if it's the top of a mountain ridge, what do you think else it is? Very rocky or stony, very stony ground. The very first mention of Bethel was given to us back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. If you remember, Abraham, after he first came into the promised land, he had built an altar at Bethel um, after his arrival. And of course, at the time of Abraham, the place was not called Bethel because who named it Bethel? We find out. In this chapter, Jacob named it Bethel. But Moses told us that Abraham built an altar at Bethel because by the time Moses wrote the book of Genesis, guess what? It was called Bethel. So that's the only reason that we know Abraham built an altar at Bethel because Moses knew that. Moses came later. All right? Okay, that's all we're going to say about Jacob's departure to Padan Aram. Let's look at our second part of our outline, the darkness and the pillow. And for this, let's look at verse 11. It says, And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set. Couldn't travel anymore because sundown. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, we don't know if Jacob knew the significance of that certain place that he came upon either the third or the fourth night of his journey. Um, We are not told if he realized that it had been an important place for his grandfather, Abraham. You know, where Abraham had built that altar, that first altar. Some have uh, speculated, some Bible students, scholars, have speculated that it may be that God directed Jacob's footsteps to the very altar that Abraham had built there many years before. And that perhaps some of the stones that Jacob used for his sleeping place were from Abraham's altar. I mean, that makes for a good story, doesn't it? An interesting story. Of course, it's just purely speculation. We, we don't know. But we do know that it was the same place, the same area, I should say the same area, where the Lord had chosen to appear to Abraham and promise Abraham that the land of Canaan was for him and for his descendants. That was back in Genesis 12, verse 7. So, therefore, it was a significant place already. And if you go through this uh, last part of chapter 28, you'll be amazed how many times you see the word place. This place, that place, certain place. This was an important place, and God, the Holy Spirit, was stressing that to us. It was a significant place already because of Abraham's altar there. And uh, this repeated mention of the place gives us evidence of God's guidance of Jacob's very footsteps. As Jacob himself later realized, you know, he wasn't just wandering. God was uh, directing his every footstep. And Jacob realized this, and we'll read about it a little bit later when we look at chapter 35, verse 3. Okay? We'll be going back to chapter 35, verse 3 a couple times in our lesson this morning. Well, learning of the, um, the dark and stony place where Jacob spent the night when he was only about one-tenth of his way to his final destination, learning of this dark, stony place gives us a rather accurate description, really, of how Jacob himself must have felt at that time. You know, his, his emotions, how he felt. It was a dark time in his life, wasn't it? And he would, actually he would later refer to this time in his life as the day of his distress. That again is in chapter 35, verse 3. He had probably not gone, you know, if we think about his life, he's 77 years old, but he had probably not ever really gone far from his home before such as his brother Esau had done, because we know Esau loved to go out on 
adventurous hunting expeditions and probably would, would be gone maybe a week at a time or something. But Jacob was always was a homebody. So we don't know that he ever went far from home before. And unlike his brother, who obviously mingled with the Canaanite peoples, because we know that from the wives that he picked, we don't know that Jacob had a whole lot of interaction or experience with uh, other peoples, like the Canaanites. Jacob may have never been very far from his parents' home, and the protection of their home and their many servants and the protection that would just be his because of the the security that their great wealth offered to them. Now, however, he was completely alone and unprotected, or so he thought. Of course, he wasn't. But from his perspective, when he looked back, you know, when he looked behind him, he was undoubtedly fearful because he had no idea that Esau would not be far behind him, ready to kill him. Remember why he's running. His brother wants to kill him. His brother hates him. And so he doesn't know that Esau went up to see Ishmael and get a third wife. As far as he knows, Esau could be around the next bend, you know, waiting to shoot an arrow into his heart. And he's in the mountains, you know, it'd be fearful to go through there because Esau was known as a cunning hunter. So when he looked back, Jacob was very fearful. And uh, also there would be fear for him if he looked ahead because he didn't know what lay before him. He had never been where he was going. He didn't know what dangers he might encounter by way of of robbers on the road um, or by murderers. Or by predatory animals. You know, even if Esau wasn't in the picture, he didn't know what lay ahead. He didn't know his uncle Laban. And if he did, he might not have gone. (laughs) Uh, He didn't know his other relatives in Haran. And therefore, he did not know what kind of a reception he would face. He didn't know how long he might be gone. He didn't know how long it might take for Esau to cool off. Uh, in his murderous hatred toward him. He didn't know if he would ever see his beloved mother again, which, of course, we know he didn't. We didn't know if he'd ever see his father again. He didn't know if he would even find a wife or if he would ever be able to take her back to his own home. Worst of all, however, must have been the darkness over his heart concerning his own position with the Lord. Was the Lord, I'm sure these are thoughts in his mind, mind, was the Lord angry uh, with him for the way that he had deceived his father and even brought the Lord's own name into his manipulative, um, deceptive scheme? Remember when he did that in chapter 27, verse 20? He even brought the Lord's name into his deception. So was the Lord angry with him? You know, uh, were his manipulative efforts to gain the blessing, were they worth it? Or by doing all that, had he brought a curse upon himself instead of a blessing? Would the Lord take from him all the promises that Jacob had so desired all of his life? So you can see that it would indeed be a dark night for Jacob, just like the sun had set physically, it was a dark time for Jacob. Furthermore, as he was laying there on the stony ground, you'll um, be interested to see all the pictures that I came up with. Some pictures he's old, some pictures he's young, some pictures he's blonde, some pictures he's dark. (laughs) We know he was 77. Whether he was gray-headed or not, I don't know. Probably not back in those days. He probably looked more like a 30-year-old would today. But anyway, as he was laying there on the stony ground to rest uh, with a stony pillow to rest against, he was literally between a rock and a hard place. I almost named our lesson between a rock and a hard place. Maybe that's where that expression comes from. I thought about that. might have been. But he couldn't turn back, and it was frightening to, to go forward into the unknown, you know, especially alone. He didn't even have a servant with him. His mother wasn't with him. That was the biggest scariest part Uh, his father wasn't with him and for all he knew God wasn't with him any longer 
What he did not know at that time was that in spite of all his failings and shortcomings, the Lord was indeed with him. In fact, as soon as Jacob would give his mind over to sleep, the Lord would appear to him to show that he and his ministering angels were with him. And he would promise to be with Jacob wherever he went. You know, this place, that place, or any other place, the Lord would always be with him. Now, some of you this morning might feel like Jacob did on that particular dark and stony night long ago. Some of you might feel like, you know, you have been exiled from those you have loved. Perhaps you have been separated from a spouse. Perhaps you have been separated uh, from your parents, from by physically or by death or whatever, or from a son or a daughter. Perhaps you are feeling like you are even sort of almost on the verge of a mental breakdown. Maybe it's the day of your distress, as he described his day. Perhaps you are fearful of the past and facing the consequences of past mistakes. Or perhaps you are fearful of the future and the unknown that lurks ahead. You, you may be misunderstood. You may be dangerously ill. You may have lost income or a, or a job recently, and you are fearful over your financial future. You may merely be discouraged about something in your life. You may feel small and very insignificant and almost have no self-worth whatsoever. That's always a common problem among women. <laughs> you may feel that you are between a rock and a hard place concerning some something in your life or some important decision that you need to make. And if any of this is true about you, then this lesson is for you in particular. Because what Jacob learned at Bethel is what you and I also need to learn. God was with him. Even though Jacob wasn't aware of God's presence, God was there. Even though it was dark, the Lord was even in the darkness. There's no place you can go where the Lord isn't because he is omnipresent. That means he's all places at once. Even though Jacob lay on a stony ground with a stone for a pillow, the Lord was the real rock of his life. Even though he was afraid of what might lurk behind him and he was afraid of what may uh, lay before him, yet the Lord himself, we'll find, was watching from above. Jacob, you see, had to get, and this is true with, with us, Jacob had to get flat on his back and look upward to get his focus right. And that is what God will do for us. He is omnipresent. He is with us. He is with his children, those who belong to him, no matter where they are or what they are encountering. And don't ever forget that. There is nothing you can go through, even the valley of the shadow of death, that he is not there with you. We, No matter where we are, we have a gateway to heaven just as Jacob would learn this very night. Look at verse 17. We have a gateway to heaven. Well, the hardness of a stone upon which to lay, I mean, how many of you would like to put your head on a stone instead of your nice fluffy pillow? <laughs> Some of you like hard pillows, but I don't think anybody likes a pillow quite that hard, unless it's my son. <laughs> but anyway, the hardness of a stone upon which to put your head is a picture of the fact that the way of the transgressor is hard. That's what it tells us in Proverbs 13, 15. The way of the transgressor is hard. Putting one's head on stone can symbolize the pain that sin brings to man. Yet regardless of how hard his pillow might have been and how hard the ground might have been, Jacob did finally manage to fall asleep, but not before he apparently called out to the Lord in his distress. In Genesis 35, 3, this is a good time to go over there now. Genesis 35, verse 3. Proverbs, you want that reference in Proverbs? Proverbs 13, 15. Okay, in Genesis 35, 3... We find, this is now 20 years later, we find Jacob telling his household...
that he was going to return to Bethel and make there an altar unto God. Now notice the next words. Who answered him in the day of his distress and was with him in the way which he went. So you see what this tells us. It tells us that although Jacob was weary and worn from his travels, when he departed, you know, after he departed from his father's house and was either on his third day or fourth day of traveling, he had taken time to call out to the Lord God for help from his distress. And did the Lord answer? Yes. The Lord graciously, exceeding abundantly answered. So let's look now at the beginning of that answer in the third part of our outline, the dream and the pronouncement. Um, I think I'll read through the whole thing and then we'll dissect it. So let's look at verses uh, 12 to 15 to begin with so you get the overflow of the whole passage, although you've probably read this already since you answered your observation questions. But let's look at verse 12 to 15. It says, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereupon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee. And will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. So, as Jacob was sleeping on the hard ground with a stone pillow, he had a dream. Now, um... I do want to throw in, this is a little footnote, but the stone was probably more for protection than obviously for comfort. You know, it was to keep his head up a little bit so that scorpions or whatever they have in that area might not bite him, whatever. It was just more protection than comfort. Perhaps also the plural use of the word stones in verse 11, perhaps that uh, suggests that because this was another thing they used to do back in that day. In addition to having a stone as his headpiece against which to rest, he may have taken stones from that place and kind of made a circle around him and laid in the middle of them. And that would be a little bit additional protection for him. But in the dream, forget the stones, let's go to the dream. In the dream, the Lord appeared and he spoke to Jacob. Now this was the very first time in Jacob's life that he did receive direct revelation from God. Now we've already learned from the warning dream that was given back in Genesis chapter 20. For those of you who have been in this study last year, we learned from the warning dream that God gave to Abimelech that prior to the completion of the Bible, now we have a complete Bible, but of course back in those days they didn't have any yet, the Lord did at times communicate to men by way of dreams. He, he would later on, we'll find out, he would speak to Joseph in dreams. And he would even enable Joseph to interpret the dreams of other people as he would also do later on in, uh, with Daniel, Daniel the prophet. Prior to the completion of scripture, God also on occasion spoke to men through visions and even sometimes, you know, through angels. Now this is what it means in Hebrews 1.1 where it states that God in sundry times and in diverse manners... In different ways, God spoke in, in past times unto the fathers. In different ways, such as in by way of angels, uh, angels or visions or dreams. Now, we don't need today, we don't need the Lord to speak to us today by way of dreams 
or angels or visions. We are more privileged, far more privileged than anyone who ever received a divinely inspired dream or vision. Because what we have is the complete word of God, which includes the account accounts, plural, of all those past visions and dreams and words by angels. Um, the Bible, I want you to understand, you don't think, oh, it would be so wonderful to have a dream like Jacob had. Well, we have the, a whole account of that dream. We have the accounts of all the other dreams that ever took place. We have the book of Revelation, which was all a vision that, that John received on the Isle of Patmos. What we have is far more valuable. We have the complete word of God. The Bible far exceeds dreams in its value. It is, for example... It's more detailed. The Bible is more detailed than dreams. The scripture covers far more subjects than, than a dream would. You know, dreams are limited in what they reveal. The Bible reveals all kinds of subjects and things. The Bible is also more trustworthy. Because uh, you think about a dream, only the dreamer knows the dream, right? And therefore, examination of it by other people is impossible. Also, the Bible is more authoritative. Dreams, if you, you know, if you come to me and tell me your dream, a dream needs to be always tested against the truths of the Bible, against the, the validity of the scripture, and not the other way around. And also, the Bible is more certain. Dreams can be vague, you know? I never remember any of my dreams unless I wake up in the middle of them and then by morning I've usually even forgotten that. Dreams are more vague and you can have parts of dreams that are forgotten. But the Bible is in print. You know? So it's it's there and God tells us it's there forever. And so the Bible and it's complete. We don't need to forget any parts of it because we have it. We're so blessed in this country to all have our own copy of God's word. So we don't need dreams today, okay, to have God speak to us. We have his word. However, because not one page of the Bible was yet written, the Lord God decided to appear and speak to Jacob in a dream. Although Jacob had literally hit the rocks... Uh, yeah, I had to throw that in there. He had literally hit the rocks that night, yet God in his great mercy gave him a tremendous blessing in a dream of good tidings of great promise and joy. Great promises and joy. Now the central feature of this dream is what? A ladder, right? The central feature is a ladder which reached from earth into very, the very heaven of God's presence. On that ladder or stairway were angels simultaneously engaged in two-way journeys up and down the ladder or the stairway. Now, what, what was above the ladder or who was above the ladder? The Lord himself was at the top of the ladder up in heaven. And he spoke to Jacob, who was at the foot of the ladder. So angels on the ladder going up and down, Lord at the top and Jacob at the bottom. Amazingly, God had not one word. Did you notice this? When we read what God said to Jacob, not one word of rebuke for Jacob. Even though he had impersonated his brother, he had deceived his father, and he even blasphemously had brought God's name into his trickery. But rather than rebuking Jacob, the Lord, in his wonderful mercy and grace, spoke words of both promise and assurance. So again, what do we learn about the Lord from this ladder, from the ladder dream? We learn about his grace and his mercy. Now, as we look more carefully at Jacob's dream, we're going to do so, if I lost my outline, yes. We're going to do so according to the four times we see the word behold in these verses. <clears throat> First of all, we're going to consider the significance of the statement, behold a ladder. We're going to analyze the ladder. Then we're going to talk about the statement, Behold the angels, the significance of the angels. And then we're going to look thirdly at the announcement from above the ladder in a section which begins in verse 13 with, Behold the Lord. And then fourthly, we're going to consider the assurances from the latter Lord himself. And that section begins um, in verse 15 with the words, Behold, I am with thee. 
I took out the word and because whenever in your Bible you see a word in italics, that means it is not in the original. So it really says, I with thee. Okay, so that's where we're headed now. Let's look at, first of all, the section, Behold a Ladder. Look just with me again at the first part of verse 12. It says, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. The central feature, again, I said, of Jacob's dream was the ladder. Very obviously, it was no ordinary ladder. For although, like other ladders, it was set up on earth, you know, we always put ladders on earth, yet what makes this ladder unique is, where did it end? In heaven itself. Now, the Hebrew word used for ladder is solemn. You don't need to know that, but that's the word. It only appears this one time in all the Bible. This is it. The only time we have that word. So we can't do a Bible uh, word study to make a comparison and see what it really means. So we don't know if it refers to a stairway, you know, like stairs, a stairway kind of a ladder or a rung type of ladder, like firemen climb, or a ramp kind of a ladder. We don't know, but it doesn't matter about the type of ladder. That would be a good poem. The ladder doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter, since the dream itself was symbolic, okay? Angels do not literally, you know, to get from heaven and earth and earth to heaven, they do not literally climb a ladder or a stairway or a ramp. Uh, So the, the type of ladder isn't important. What is important is what the ladder, or I should say who the ladder represents. Earth, we know is separated from God's heaven by a tremendous, seemingly impassable gulf of space. This vast gulf in the physical world signifies man's separation from God's holiness in the spiritual world. Jacob surely knew, you know, from his forefathers, he surely knew about Adam and Eve and the beautiful Garden of Eden. He would have heard how Adam's sin against God had separated him and his descendants from God's presence and how Adam, you know, had been exiled from the garden and then subjected to death, both spiritual death and physical death. Jacob would also have known that God immediately promised Adam and Eve a coming deliverer. You know, Genesis 3.15, back to that again. One who would one day bring God and man back together, at least for those who believed in this coming deliverer. So this great deliverer, this redeemer, this savior, the promised seed of the woman, was to be the one who would bridge the seemingly impassable gulf between earth and heaven. The blessing of Abraham and Isaac, which Jacob so desperately desired to to gain, was very closely connected with this first evangelical promise of God about the coming Savior. Jacob had longed to be a part of the line of people who would bring the coming Savior into the world. He had believed all these things, but had probably longed for some kind of personal assurance from the Lord himself that he, Jacob, was the recipient of the Abrahamic blessing, which carried on, you know, the hope of that original promise of the coming Savior. Now, Jacob was 77 years old at this time, and he had never himself heard the promised blessings of God given to to him, as both his grandfather and his father had. Perhaps, then, as Jacob put his head on that hard stone that night, he had wondered if God was truly going to back up the blessing that he had now received from his father Isaac. You know, back in verses 3 and 4, Isaac finally gave him the Abrahamic blessing. But Jacob was probably wondering, wondering, is God going to back this up? You know, my father Isaac heard directly from God that he was to be the recipient of the Abrahamic blessing. And Abraham, my grandfather, heard directly from God. Am I going to hear directly from God? Perhaps he was thinking the Lord would eliminate him 
now from the messianic line because of what he had done by way of his deceptive plan with his mother. Apparently, as mentioned earlier, based on Jacob's own words in Genesis 35.3, apparently Jacob had been praying to God for some kind of help in all this matter of his confusion and his distress. He had been praying before he fell to sleep. So God, in a dream, answered Jacob's prayer exceeding abundantly. Not only did Jacob learn through this dream that God cared for him in spite of all his sin and that there were were a multitude of angels who were busily involved in the work of God on earth, and we're going to discuss that in a little bit, but Jacob also learned that there is a bridge or a ladder or a stairway, whatever you want to call it, between heaven and earth by which God would come down to man and by which man could also then ascend up to God. There is a stairway to span the seeming impassable, impossible gulf between sinful man and holy God. But that stairway was totally God's doing. God was the one who built that stairway or that ladder. Man could never, you know, for, for all of his labor, he could never span the gulf between earth and heaven. And this was evidence to us where? At the Tower of Babel, you know, his futile attempt to build a tower to reach heaven. And it's also evident by all of man's equally futile man-made religious attempts to get to heaven ever since. You know, all, his, all man-made religions and philosophies are an attempt for man to get to God his way. But they're all doomed to failure. In fact, the ladder that he used to span that gulf was none other than himself in the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Unlike man's stairways, such as the Tower of Babel, which originate on earth and fall short, far short, of linking to heaven, God's stairway originated where? His stairway originated in heaven and came down to earth. Jesus Christ left heaven and came down to earth. Man's attempts all begin on earth and try to get to heaven. Almost 2,000 years from the time of Jacob, 2,000 years from Jacob into the future, there was a devout Jew named Nathaniel. Nathaniel had been apparently under a fig tree meditating on the things of God. We learn this from John chapter 1. If you'll go to the New Testament, please. Go over to the book of John. You know, we start in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. John 1, verse 48. Now, Nathaniel, as he sat under that fig tree, very well may have been reading and meditating on the Old Testament scripture regarding Jacob's dream. The very thing that we're looking at. Maybe Nathaniel was wondering how there possibly could be a way, a ladder, a stairway by which men on earth could ascend to God in heaven. Well, whether or not Nathaniel was actually meditating and thinking along that line, we don't know. But his friend Philip knew that Nathaniel was a man with a deep spiritual interest. He also knew, Philip knew that Nathaniel was a man who longed for the coming of the one promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets, that one being the coming Savior. Philip himself, Philip was Nathaniel's friend, Philip had just met Jesus. And what was the first thing Philip wanted to do after he met Jesus? And knew who he was, recognized him to be the coming promised seed of the woman, the Savior. First thing he wanted to do was go and tell his friend, Nathaniel, that he needed to come and also meet Jesus. According to Philip, Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Now, Nathaniel, although at first skeptical, he's the one who said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Although at first he was skeptical, when he did meet Jesus, he was very soon convinced that Jesus was indeed the coming, the, the one promised from the very beginning, the Savior. And uh, it was after Nathaniel's confession 
that Christ was the Son of God and the rightful King of Israel, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, then said these words to Nathanael. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That's in John 1, verse 51. The Lord Jesus here was claiming that he was the link. You can call him the link or the ladder or the stairway. He is the link between earth and heaven. As both fully God and fully man, he alone bridges the otherwise impassable distance between humanity and deity, between sinner and holy God, between earth and heaven. We can only approach God and reach heaven through him. It's the only way we can get to heaven is through him. He is the one mediator between God and men. 1 Timothy 2, 5. I love this picture here because this picture is worth a million words. (laughs) He is, as Jesus himself said, he is the way. The truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. All the many ministries of the angels, the holy angels, which we're going to talk about next, all their ministries depend on him because he is God. The Lord Jesus is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the great redeemer of all things. The mediation work of Christ the work which made it possible for that gulf between sinful man and holy God to be spanned, where was that mediation work done? Where was it accomplished? On the cross at Calvary. And that's why when we close today, we're going to sing the song, Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span where? At Calvary. Okay, let's look now at Behold the Angels. And for this, we'll look at verse the latter part of verse 12. It says, i got to hurry up. Hoo-hoo. And behold the angels of God ascending and descending on it. The second concern which caught Jacob's attention in his dream was a steady procession of angels. I don't know if you can even see. Yeah, you can kind of see those angels. Now, I don't know, some of these pictures have angels as women. You know there are no female angels in the Bible. So they should all look like men. Some of the artists didn't study their Bibles very well, but there are no female angels. They're all, they all look like men. Or at least when they appear, they don't have sex. But when they appear as men, they appear as men. <laughs> Not as women. All right, yeah, when they appear on earth, they appear as men. All right, so there's a steady procession of them ascending and descending the ladder, which spanned earth and heaven. Now, since the scripture teaches us that there does exist a, an innumerable company of angels, now we're speaking of holy angels, it has been suggested that this ladder or this stairway, in addition to being very tall, because it reached up into heaven, was also very wide. Um, because all this myriad of angels was busily going up and down on it. Now, this part of the dream told Jacob several things. For one, it told him that those mighty supernatural beings were busily involved in carrying out the commands of God, which have to do with earth, and especially with God's people on earth. We're told in Psalm 103, verse 20, that angels excel in strength. Very, 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 very strong. And we are told they do God's commandments and they hearken unto the voice of God's word. In Hebrews 1.14, we find that their primary function down here on earth is to serve as ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. What does that mean? What do angels, who do angels minister to? Isn't it wonderful? Us. So the little thing about guardian angels is really true. We just can't see them. They're in a different realm. But they are down here ministering to God's people. Their particular interest, in other words, is um, at God's direction to minister to God's people. Now, the angels of Jacob's dream were engaged in two-way trips, right? They're up and down. 
So they're busily bearing God's instructions from heaven to earth, and then they're reporting back to him for further directions and also for reports. You know, they report back to God and tell him what they've been what they what they have accomplished and all that sort of thing. Now, of course, as I said before, angels do not literally have to ascend a ladder or a stairway or a ramp to to travel between earth and heaven because they have the ability to uh, to fly swiftly. We're told that in Daniel chapter 9 verse 21. Um, angels in the Old Testament are also described as being responsible for different nations. So God has ascribed certain angels to protect and be over certain nations and territories. They're also described as patrolling over certain sections of the earth. So, now listen up because some of you have asked me, why does it say ascending first and then descending? Oops. Well, I didn't know if there was any significance, but this is the only suggestion I came up with here. <laughs> it says, it, it has been suggested by one commentator that um, the ascending angels, those who are going up the ladder, that they, are, they were the ones who were, were responsible for the land of Canaan, Jacob's homeland, while the descending angels represent those responsible for the land of Padan Aram, to which Jacob was going. In other words, you see the suggestion, and we can't be dogmatic about this, but the suggestion is that the angels of Jacob's dream gave him a further assurance of God's protection over him, even though he was leaving the promised land and going into a foreign land, going over into you know, the land of Syria. Or upper Mesopotamia. So I just throw that out to you. You can take and do with it what you want. Yet others have also suggested that the angels ascending and descending the ladder speak of the fact. Now, who is the ladder? Who did Jesus himself say the ladder was? He, him. He is the ladder. And so that they say that the angels ascending and descending on the ladder involved the, or suggest the fact that the angels were very involved in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And was that true? Yes, it was. From the very beginning when the angel Gabriel first announced to Mary that she was con- going to conceive by the Holy Spirit and give birth to the, the Messiah, all the way to the end when he ascended up into heaven and two angels told his disciples that he would come again just as he left. And I'm going to skip all the other things, but there were, you know, if you know anything about the life of Christ, there were many angels involved in his earthly ministry. Well, not the good news is that not only do angels minister to, or did they minister to Christ, but they also minister to those who are in Christ. If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then they also minister to you. Again, you know, Hebrews 1.14 tells us that. Not only are they involved in our lives as ministering spirits, but they are involved in even our death. When you die, I believe that there are angels there to ascend you back up into or not back up, you've never been there before, <laughs> but to ascend you up into the Lord's presence. We know because when Lazarus, the beggar, when he died, the Lord Jesus said that he was carried up by the angels into Abraham's bosom. That's exciting. And then we're told when the Lord returns, you know, at his second coming, we are told that he shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So there they are literally going to be descending with the Son of Man or on the Son of Man, we could say. So anyway, that's about the angels. Let's look now. Anyway, you know, the next part is about behold the Lord. The, the words of the Lord that the Lord God spoke to Jacob in verses 13 and 14, we're going to look at those first, they deal with the Abrahamic covenant. This is what Jacob needed to hear, that he was going to inherit the Abrahamic covenant. Now, first of all, before he actually gets into the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord speaks to Jacob about his person. In other words, he identifies himself. Here we go. Put that up there. 
So first of all, he identifies his person. Then he's going to tell um, Jacob that about his future property, then his future progeny, meaning his descendants. And then he's going to tell Jacob about his purpose, his great purpose. So let's look at his person. First of all, first part of verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. Here, of course, uh, as Jacob was lying on the earth dreaming, he saw the Lord standing above the ladder. And um, then the Lord identified himself to Jacob. This, by the way, is called a theophany. A theophany, is that's the word for a, um, a vision of God. Theophany. We have a Christophany, that's a picture of Christ. This is a theophany, a vision of God, the sovereign ruler of the universe. And he immediately identifies his person to Jacob as, how does he describe himself? The God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. And then we notice the term, thy father, that automatically told Jacob that he was being placed as the third in the chosen line, you know, the messianic line. Later on in scripture, God frequently is known not only as the God of Abraham and Isaac, but what else? The God of Jacob. So this night was Jacob's introduction to this very blessed truth that he was going to be the third in the chosen line that would lead to the Messiah. He did not have to deceive in order to inherit the Abrahamic blessing because God intended to give it to him from the very beginning. And here he got it. He would have gotten it. He didn't have to do all that deception. God would have given him this blessing anyway. Well, again, I should make a note of the fact that we find here God did not rebuke Jacob. Jacob, of course, would have many long years uh, worth of lessons to learn. And he would have a lot of reaping from both his previous and his yet future mistakes. But God, in his infinite mercy, allowed Jacob to start out here with direct divine communication regarding his privileges and his prospects. The Lord was going to keep his unconditional promise made originally to Abraham and then passed along to Isaac and now to Jacob. Okay, so that's God identifying his person. Let's look now at promise of the property. Verse 13b, he says, The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. Now remember, Isaac is still in the promised land. He hasn't left yet. Bethel is in the promised land. He's in Israel. Isaac had given, remember, Isaac had given the promise of inheriting the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, to Jacob before he left home. That was back in verse 4 of this chapter. And now what is God doing? doing? He's reaffirming that promise. He would give Jacob the very land upon which he was lying. And even more, Um, he would even give him more. He would give him the whole land of Israel promised back to Abraham. Now this had to have been, if you think about it, this had to have been a great comfort to Jacob because he was soon to leave the land. Maybe in a couple days he would be out of the promised land and he didn't know if he would ever return. In fact, Jacob, who had been a rich man's son and had no need of anything, you know, ever in his life he had never needed anything, now had nothing. Here's where we talk about what we know he did have. He had nothing but a staff, you know, big long staff, a stick or whatever you want to call it. We know that from Genesis 32.10. The clothes on his back... And perhaps an animal or two, like you see in this picture, of transport. And a few physical supplies. I'm sure he had some food, you know, maybe a a few additional outfits to wear. But we know that he had nothing of any significance with him because when he finally reaches Laban, what does he have to offer Laban in order to marry Rachel? All he has to offer him... He doesn't have gold bracelets and silver and, you know, all kind of riches to give him. All he has is his own physical labor, which he offers seven years worth for Rachel. Um, 
So he didn't have much. But just as we who acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior are rich, because even if we're not rich, we are rich because we have the promise of heaven, the promise of the promised land. God promised Jacob that he was rich because he also had the promise of the promised land, which God would give to him and his descendants. And he also had a promise now of of about numerous descendants who would fill that land. And that's what we look at in the first part of verse 14. God goes on and he says, not only would he give him the land, but he says, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And that's where I'll stop. (laughs) Okay, so this has to do with his progeny, his descendants. They would be as the dust of the earth. Remember, we had heard that promise given to Abraham back in chapter 13, verse 14. So this was interesting in light of the fact that Jacob wasn't even married. Right? He's not married yet. He's on a quest for a wife, but uh, this this would be very comforting news to hear. Think if you're in Jacob's sandals, okay? Um, you don't even know if Esau's around the next bend and he's going to put an arrow through your heart or whatever. You don't know if you're going to make it to Haran. You don't know if there's going to be any eligible young women in Haran, you know. But here he's getting the promise that, yes, you're going to survive. No, no predatory animal is going to eat you up. Esau's not going to kill you. You're going to make it to Haran. You're going to find yourself a wife, and you're going to have many, many descendants. So that's comfort, isn't it? That's a great comfort to Jacob. Okay, now he gives him his purpose at the end of verse 14. He says, And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The most important part of the Abrahamic covenant is found in the promise that through Jacob and his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. Because what is this? This is the promise of the coming Savior. It would be through the coming Savior, the Messiah, that all the families of the earth would be blessed because he would be the bridge, the one to link earth and heaven and sinful man and a holy God. So this part of the blessing, hearing this, must have also been an immense encouragement and comfort to Jacob at a time when he was not only lonely and impoverished, but he was also disgraced. He had done wrong, and he was fleeing in disgrace as well as in fear. He may have felt that he had brought a curse upon himself. But you see what God is doing? God, in his grace, told Jacob that through him and his offspring, he would be a blessing to the whole earth. So, you know, this, this is amazing. Again, we always keep going back to the amazing grace of God. So this part of the uh, the promise of Jacob speaks to us today because it tells us that no matter how awful we have been in our past and how embarrassed or ashamed we might be about our past or anything we have done, yet God is always willing and ready to start fresh with us, isn't he? No matter where we are, he can still use us if we yield to him. He can still use us as a channel of blessing in the lives of others. But God wasn't finished. He yet had some more words of comfort, and those are what we find in the last behold. Behold, I with thee, verse 15. In this sect, in this one verse, he tells Jacob three more. Now, this goes beyond the Abrahamic covenant. This, is just addition, this was just additional blessings. He tells Abraham that he's going to protect, I mean, not Abraham, Jacob. He tells him that he's going to protect him. Notice he says that, um, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. You think Jacob needed to hear that? That God would be with him no matter where he went? That he is omnipresent? You know, in those days, the heathens thought that gods were just gods over particular nations or territories. And this, this we find, even went into some of the thinking of, of the saved people, the Israelites. That's why, you know, Rachel wants to carry a god with her when she leaves. And so this, Jacob is learning that God wasn't just the god of the land of Canaan. He was God of the universe. He would be with him no matter where he went, even when he left the promised land. And he says he would also keep him from perishing. This is a promise that was not only made to Jacob, but who does Jacob represent, symbolize? Israel. 
Remember, this is also a promise to Israel that God would be with her no matter where she went, even when she was scattered among the Gentile nations, and he would always keep her. He would always prevent her from perishing. So that's the promise of protection. Then the promise of pardon comes in in the second part where it says, and I will bring thee again into this land. Really what he's saying there is, you know, uh, Jacob is being exiled because of his sin. He's being exiled from the land of promise. But God is saying, I'm going to pardon you for your sin. And one day I will return you to the land. Was that also true for Israel? Yes, she was exiled because of her sin. But God promised her that he would return her to the land. And he did. Not only after her 70 years of captivity in Babylon, he returned her, but he is even returning her today after 2,000 years of being scattered among the nations. Well, the last part is so beautiful. In the last part, he says, For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. This is a promise of God's abiding presence. He would be with Jacob and would never leave him. No matter what happened, where Jacob went, what he did, the Lord would never leave him nor what? Forsake him. And we have this promise too. We have this same promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us. All these seven, there were seven parts of what God spoke to Jacob. All these seven parts of God's promises to Jacob were a very great blessing of assurance. Blessing and uh, promises of joy and assurance to him. Because he learned that God was still interested in him. And was still at work in his life. And that God still planned to use him in spite of all his failures and his flaws. So when Jacob awoke, and that's what we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. When he awoke, he would have some new realizations about God. Including a greater understanding of God's omnipresence. He would also understand that there is indeed a way which has been established by God himself for man to enter into his holy presence. Now Jacob only knew of this one, this promised seed of the woman, as the latter Lord. But we are, or, or the one too, uh, in whom all the nations of the world would, would be blessed. But we are more blessed than Jacob because we know that the latter Lord is who? We know his name. We know he is Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who spanned that gulf where? At Calvary. 